Welcome to the Joy Factory Monthly and Inappropriately Named Podcast for the Joy Factory Project. On today's show, again, <laughs> is Batman Returns the best Batman movie ever made? My guest probably thinks so, and you'll have to listen to find out the answer. Thanks for joining me on this adventure of virtual nerdery. I am your host, Sean Duke, proprietor of the Skiffy Fanty Show, professor of nerdly things, and sometime writer and TTRPG dork. If you're here, it means you fell down a magic well into some kind of alternate reality. Welcome. We have pure leaf brewed unsweetened black tea. You're welcome. And with me today is Andy of Geek Salad Podcast fame. Welcome to the show. Hey, how's it going? Very excited to be here. <laughs> Again. <laughs> Again. <laughs> Yeah, we had a we had a recording snafu, which <laughs> we learned a lesson from. <laughs> yep, don't trust Cakewalk. Yeah, I mean, in general, just don't trust software. <laughs> well, perfect. So we're here to talk about Batman Returns from 1992. It is arguably one of the greatest Batman movies ever made, starring a number of lovely people, such as Michael Keaton, obviously, Danny DeVito as the Penguin, Michelle Pfeiffer as Catwoman, Christopher Walken as an evil, slimy businessman, and some others, uh, directed, as always, by Tim Burton, the great. Also, scored by Danny Elfman, which, you know, yeah. And so, to get us started, Andy, why do you love this movie? Well, I love this movie because... I've had varying opinions about the Batman movies, and this is all the Batman movies uh, over the course of like the last 32 years now since uh, Batman 89 came out. And I I feel like my opinion um, on the first one wanes. My my opinion of Forever and, and and Robin are have always kind of been in the gutter to begin with, um, and even the Nolan stuff. <laughs> I've kind of found that it's like, okay, they're good, but are they really great? I don't know anymore. So it's like <laughs> I, I can I, – I really pull those apart and I really scrutinize them. And there are certain things I like about those movies and there are certain things I do not like about those movies. So the thing is is that with Batman Returns, it's always there. It's always amazing. And based on another conversation I had um, on another on somebody else's podcast, on the Movies After Work podcast, uh, we were casting who we wanted to see as, um, as villains in subsequent Batman movies. And then the question came around to, who would you not replace? What characters were so good in the movies that you would never replace them? And I said, straight up, Penguin and Catwoman from Batman Returns. They are majestic. Yeah, I mean, I think like, part of why this film still holds up for me is actually because of that cast and the way that they're presented. Because, like, Danny DeVito morphs into this this creature. And, like, Danny DeVito is, like, a very particular physical specimen of his own and yet somehow also manages to morph into this sort of monstrous version of the penguin you know michelle pfeiffer i has a unique amount of character development going from the sort of mousy very you know passive version of her of selena kyle to suddenly being this lithe you know almost seductive but also like cruel and unpredictable uh catwoman 
And they all mold into those characters, I think, remarkably well. Even though this film is, in a lot of ways, completely bonkers. Oh, this <laughs> I mean, movie is insane. <laughs> the penguin lives in the like the sewers of like the abandoned Gotham Zoo with a bunch of really freaking large penguins. <laughs> well, that's the thing, too. If you were to introduce a friend to Batman Returns, because they've been in a coma for 29 years... And you're like, I'm going to introduce you to my favorite Batman movie. Let me show you a scene. I'm just going to put this on random. And oh, look, here are the penguins with their jetpacks on. (laughs) Out of context, that might seem insane. Within the context, it fits perfectly well. It's it's goofy. It's I mean, this is by no means there's no in my opinion, I don't think there's anything such thing as a perfect movie every movie even my favorite movies have flaws uh including this one but it's just it, it's just because at that point everything in this movie has just moved from dark sinister funny to all of a sudden like throwing it into full throttle batshit crazy you know because yeah. keep in mind you've already seen the penguin riding a motorized duck up a flight of stairs before you see the I think actually no it's at, right after you see the penguins but he's been riding around in a motorized duck for 20 minutes prior to that visually this film you know like the first of the of the Tim Burton Batmans had a bit of of camp to it but it it still was tonally very serious that the campy parts are really the Batman parts because I think you could say that while Jack Nicholson is maybe doing some campiness to it some comicness to it there's like a sinister seriousness to his character and even it's even how he becomes the Joker in that film uh that he's actually much more scary as a villain Whereas in this, like, yeah, the Penguin is still scary, but there's a way that this film just kind of ramps up the amount of that sort of comicness and owns it, allows it to be there in in just the right amounts, just the amounts that allow the characters to shine, that allow Batman to have something to respond to, that give good action set pieces. I mean, there's like literally a moment when they're, because Penguin's plan in this movie is like, I'm going to steal all the firstborn sons, right? And he has this like, troop of clown monster guys that just basically ride around in like a motorized toy train and steal all the babies uh at one point and that that is a silly ridiculous idea but it works in this film i think because the film doesn't take itself so seriously that those things feel out of place and it doesn't go into too far into being silly that those things don't feel grounded in the story we're given yeah, no, I I fully agree with that, and just the, the the vast differences between eighty nine, which is very much a piece of studio product. I mean, I understand this is this is really the movie where Tim Burton became Tim freaking Burton. You know, <laughs> fans like myself who loved Beetlejuice and who adore Pee Wee's Big Adventure, we were looking forward to it because okay, this director that we like from these movies that we saw. He's directing a Batman movie. This could be cool. Batman had kind of, within my group of friends in, in the late 80s, it kind of fallen off. And the only thing that we were really talking about was The Dark Knight Returns. So, you know, we knew that this was going to be a little darker. But if you compare this movie, the way that this movie feels, this movie, the, the first movie, 89, is very calculated. There's very little risk 
that is taken. I honestly, I think the biggest risk, other than casting Michael Keaton, which thank God the internet didn't, didn't exist in 1988. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh my God, I had to deal with Variety articles. Like I had to read print, like a commoner, to to see like the, these awful things about how how is Mr. Mom going to be Batman, and. Yep. It was it was just crazy because he in 1988 when he got cast he was also cast he was he was in a movie called Clean and Sober which a lot of people don't talk about um but it really gave him like a really good dramatic dark side and I could see him being able to, to do that but Batman in and of itself the biggest risks taken with the first Batman movie is Tim Burton and I think the Danny Elfman score I think utilizing Danny Elfman's kind of late 80s brand of Oingo Boingo meets Clown Car music <laughs> was was unheard of when all we really had before that was John Williams and John Williams knockoffs. So when we go to Batman Returns, it's three years later, there are a ton of expectations for how this movie is going to do, how this movie is going to perform, what is this movie going to look like, and Tim Burton like throws down his sketch pad and says, we're doing this. And Everything, the the designs of the characters, you could tell – the Penguin definitely came from his sketchbook. Right, because it's completely different from the Penguin that most people would be familiar with from the comics. Yes. Yeah. Oh, it's very different than like the Burgess Meredith Penguin. And I, I, I will die on the hill, and my, my friend Steve will – it always refutes me on this. But I will die on this hill that in 1992 – no no major movie going person just the, your regular lay person would put down money because your main villain is a short squat guy in a tuxedo making penguin just kind of like that that the, the penguin affectations they needed something that was going to pop on the screen a little better, something that really gave it a little more meaning, a little more gravitas, and to make him a grotesque, to have him being abandoned by his family, by having, you know, like this this whole – he's lived his whole life with a chip on his shoulder, and it isn't because his mother overcoddled him and made him take an umbrella everywhere with him. He was literally abandoned by his parents in an icy river on Christmas Eve. <laughs> and raised by penguins. <laughs> and raised by circus folk and penguins yes and i think that that really that really plays into a lot of the risks that they they took with this movie you know michelle pfeiffer is just this is one of her best roles and i i I firmly if you were to rank every actor who has ever portrayed a batman villain on screen on the big screen she is your she's your top one over I think everybody else. I'll put her over Jack Nicholson. I'll put her over Heath Ledger. I will put her over anybody. I think she was phenomenal in this movie. I would not change one iota of her performance. No, I think her performance is exceptionally strong in this. I mean, you really believe the character shift, the change that she goes through. It's it's well acted, and I think that's a, in a large part really good direction, really good writing, and really good editing. That all of that combined made for a film that has effectively three villains, and yet at no point feels bloated, nothing feels like rushed right everything seems to move apace at an appropriate speed and i think one of the interesting things is in all talking about this right where we have to compare batmans to other batmans and and we have to compare batman movies to other batman renditions in live action because well you and i both have lived through essentially three different batman periods we've lived through the burton period we've lived through the god-awful thing that was in the middle 
And well, I guess four if we count also this new badge. And then we got the Nolan Batman, and then we got the uh, Zack Snyder Batman. And then I guess we'll live through period four A because uh, we're now getting a Robert Pattinson Batman, which whatever. But I think like the reason I was bringing that up is that it's interesting to me that when we look at these th- the primarily the three periods, if we ignore Zack Snyder for a minute, we have Tim Burton doing these two films where. Yes, in Batman, the first Batman, it's very his vision's muted, right? There's there's still Burtonness there. There's still plenty of that there, but it's not quite fully Tim Burton. But when we get to this film, it's very Tim Burton, all over the place. But it does this thing where it it brings in all of the the flair and the grotesquerie that I think Tim Burton's Uber is very interested in, right? If we go to Edward Scissorhands or Beetlejuice, right? These films that really love to look at the beauty and terror of the grotesque that becomes the sort of focus of this when we get to the nolan batman right we have this period at which nolan is like okay but i want to take seriously what would a what would like a dude who dresses up as a batman at night like what what does that look like in a realistic universe right and so it's gritty it's very much you know about political intrigue and there is some fighting but it's much more grounded in less of the gosh bang pow wow kind of stuff it has its own kind of vision and i think it for the most part works fairly effectively because it it has a vision of what it wants to be and it sticks to it and that's the thing that the middle stuff loses because they took tim burton and i guess they just went like we want it to be more zany and ridiculous without necessarily thinking about how that's necessarily granted. With the exception that Arnold Schwarzenegger is fantastic as Mr. Freeze and I will die on the hill because <laughs> uh, I love his, I love the puns. The puns crack me up, even if that movie's utterly ridiculous and terrible. Yeah. And I think that that's really an, an important distinction of why people don't remember those middle films nearly as well as Tim Burton isn't involved in them anymore. His vision's gone. He moves on to other projects. He basically, the studio decides they don't really want him involved. This film went through some struggles because... On the one hand, right, studio, we're trying to interfere with it. On the other, uh, it was accused, I think ironically, of being too dark and violent in 1992, so much so that McDonald's, like, pulled their Happy Meal promotions for it. It was, there was a whole to-do. And yet, if you look at this film by comparison to, like, any Batman product made post-2000, right, this film is really tame. It's scary. Like, when I was a kid, the Penguin's terrifying. <laughs> but it's... It still has like some of that comic-y violence. It doesn't feel like the violence of today. You know, like I watched like Terminator 2 in the theaters when I was a kid. Like, you know, like a dude literally makes a blade of of metal go through a dude's eye. Like, (laughs) so I don't know. But anyway, like the point I was trying to make is just I think there's that interestingness with with why we remember those two periods of Batman movies so fondly and why we don't really respect that middle one and i think arguably most people don't respect the snyder version but i don't necessarily want to hash that out yeah it's weird because the expectation going into batman returns was that it was they brought tim burton back for a reason if they hadn't brought tim burton back then people would be losing their damn minds that they didn't have tim burton back whereas you know when they when they when they moved to schumacher it's it it was this just they they overcorrected the course and decided that yeah we need that it's it's more important for us to to do the happy meals to make the the bright neat we want batman to kind of return back to what we remember batman being uh which was the 1960s batman which was entirely against what michael uslan brought to warner brothers in the first place when he he proposed and shopped around the the batman 89 
So 89 and 92, because it's way easier to call it by those. And I really, it's just, it's, it's just insane because yeah, it's funny to think that technically speaking, those four movies, so 89 returns forever and, and Robin are technically part of the same universe. And then you move on to Nolan. Right. And then we we barely had any time before then we moved into Snyderverse. But I think overall, this movie in and of itself has got the perfect Tim Burton aesthetic. The use of that cat face for Shrek's department store. Just yeah. so, so natural and looks so good in this movie. And it's just, I don't think it's one of those things that gets a lot of, of love only because I think the only time it really ties into anything in the movie is when selena's on is about to tear up the the department store and she kind of is standing there at the at the frosted glass window and the cat's face is 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 kind of enveloping hers which is a fantastic shot yeah i mean there's there's an element of the way that tim burton directs that there's a lot of effort to capture like visual metaphor in in what is presented right that you could tell that tim burton is very careful like i am making shot choices on purpose right the way that i'm framing scenes is on purpose i mean like the i think max shrek's a good example right the moment that we realize max shrek actually cares more about his son than literally anything else in the world isn't because he sits down and gives a speech it's actually mostly a physical motion right when his son is like trying to get up in Penguin's grill and is being threatened with being murdered. Yeah. And basically Max Trash says, no, take me instead. Yeah. And it's one scene, and yet it is totally believable because Christopher Walken does a great job. But the way that that is all framed immediately sets up like a whole backstory that we don't necessarily need, but we can imagine the the love he has for son, even though he is an evil bastard. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but he loves his dweeb of a son. Yep. Oh, God. It's just... I love that scene at the beginning when the Penguin's men are, like, sieging the, the, the tree lighting. And his son is just like, you know, you have to go through me. And they just pull out all their guns and knives, and they're just like, ooh. But, yeah, I I, I buy that relationship. And it doesn't right. happen a lot. They don't need to – and the beauty is with a lot of this movie, there's a lot of messaging in this movie that isn't ha- being hammered over the head with. The whole – the whole idea of duality in this movie, um, the whole idea of wearing masks is a big theme in this movie. But it's not like taking you, you know, it's not like whacking you upside the head every single time with, oh, by the way, we wear masks and we hide ourselves from our true selves. And, you know, it, it really is. It's nice because the storytelling doesn't more. This movie doesn't moralize, which I, I really hate, especially the, the Schumacher Batman movies moralize <laughs> a lot about stuff. And again, it's that whole I, I, I had this conversation last week about Poison Ivy, you know, Poison Ivy. Why am I why am I rooting for the billionaire? Oh, that's right, because she's they're not painting her as actually having a noble cause. She's just a crazed person who's just going to overrun the world with plants, which is why the Harley Quinn animated uh, Poison Ivy is the best Poison Ivy. Yeah, it's a critical misunderstanding of the character. I saw a Twitter thread about this, that Poison Ivy needs to be thought more like a a hero of a kind she's like almost like an anti-hero she's not a villain right i mean she she's framed as a villain because she's part of the rogues gallery but 
only because sometimes her interests are opposed to Batman or other heroes, but because their interests are really questionable interests, right? Like Batman, Bruce Wayne is a rich, filthy rich billionaire, right? Who presides Mm -hmm. over a company that probably does a lot of sketchy stuff. And so his interest in protecting Gotham sometimes goes against you know, Poison Ivy's interest because she's actually trying to, like, protect the environment and the, you know, the the everyday schmo, uh, you know, the people who've been downtrodden. This is a thing that she does a lot in the comics. And I think that that this it's a good thing to talk about, like, those other films, the Schumacher films, because I think that's the central problem with why those films don't work is they fundamentally misunderstand what their villains are and then decide that they're just going to have like, you know, the bat bat mastercard or American express or oh, whatever he's got. Lord. Um, and then the nipples. Don't forget the nipples oh, uh, yeah, and the cod pieces. Don't forget the cod pieces. Lots of cod pieces. Yeah. I mean, they, they had a sale, I guess at, at Wayne Manor, but he like miss critically misunderstands. I think in Tim Burton, even though he, there's changes here to, especially the, the penguin, it's not a critical and misunderstanding of, of who that character is. It, functions well within the context of the story that we're being told the changes make sense based on the vision we've been given i mean keep in mind 1989's batman it's not exactly the traditional joker right right uh that all kind of fits and operates really well and you find the penguin's motivations even though you disagree with what his ultimate choice to do is you understand where he's coming from i mean this poor guy was like he was a baby he was like raised by monstrous clown dudes and like a circus of penguins and stuff you know he's angry and bitter and everyone thinks that he's horrifying and terrible you understand where he's coming from, that he has been treated really horribly. The solution he has to being his villainous self is to murder all of the children. But, you know, you don't agree with that, but you understand where he's coming from. And I think that, like, if you look at some of the Schumacher films, like, some of the villains are just villainous for the sake of being villainous. There's not a whole lot of effort put into, like, why are they villains? With the exception, again, of Mr. Freeze, because he wants to save his wifey. Yep. (laughs) But, like, I don't even remember. Like, why is the Riddler the way he is? He just got, like, mad one day. He got mad one day because he was ignored at work. Oh, boo-hoo. Yeah, I know, seriously. And, well, I mean, look at look at Two-Face. You can't t- – I mean, what I, I understand, you know, face splash with acid. But why are you just nonsensically laughing all the time? And every once in a while, referring to yourself as we. It's just <laughs> – it, there's no integration into it. It's It's zany for the sake of being zany. Like, if you look at Selena Kyle – she has like a very traumatic moment that leads her to turn into Catwoman, but it's it's not implied in the story that that wasn't there. It's just buried. It's a thing that comes out of her as a consequence of a traumatic falling to her death, essentially. Whereas, like, I mean, all that we get out of out of the Riddler is like people ignored him at work, and so he becomes a zany villain who wears a green leotard and is just Jim Carrey, like. That's that doesn't there's nothing anchored to that. It just feels like, why do I care about this? Like, if you fell into a vat of acid yourself, would that necessarily would that would just improve the movie? Honestly, at this point. <laughs> well, and that that's the issue is that a lot of times we mistake, you know, real motivation for being a villain against being a mediocre white male, I think, is the. Uh... <laughs> yeah. But the thing also, you know, you, you mentioned a little bit about you just the, like the. The nobility of of character motivations. This is what I like. There's a, there's a line in this movie when 
Um, it's after the first time that Batman meets both the Penguin and meets Catwoman. It's the day after, and he runs into Selina. Bruce Lee runs into Selina just on the street, and they he reads the newspaper article about Batman trashes the city, and he's just like defending everything like he's probably saved millions in property damage and it's just it's something that is so cool that it's just this is the first time we can really feel like bruce wayne definitely feels like he is batman on the inside he's just it's not like he doesn't have to adopt the the christian the christian bale rasp every time he talks which you know if they ever redubbed the Schumacher movies with the Christian Bale rasp. I'll be all over it. <laughs> but I really feel like they, Keaton does such... I mean, I think it's... We're coming back around where it's like, who's your, who's the best Batman? Who's the best Batman? Who's the best Bruce Wayne? And I'm really... I think a lot of the, the, the public sentiment is coming back around that maybe Michael Keaton was the best of both worlds. That's interesting. He's a very good... He's an excellent Bruce Wayne because I don't feel like the Bruce Wayne character gets much, especially because, first of all, this is one of the few movies where we don't once address the alley. Thank God for that. Oh, God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the death, yet again, of his darn parents. Yep. And the only time you ever see him really kind of brooding is at the very beginning when you're, in, you're reintroduced to him and they fl- he's got all the crazy bat signal lights flashing. He's just in his study and he's thinking about something. And then the, he, the light shines and that's it. For the most part, he Michael Keaton looks like – I don't know how he was doing on, on set. But he looks like he's having a better time with this movie. And I feel like um, Michael Goff as Alfred is having a much more – they're having more fun with yeah. this movie. They get to play with the – gadgets a little more they get to have they get to do a lot more and just the 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 witty repartee between the two of them the whole thing about can we please put on something with more dignity and respect how about love connection (laughs) and the whole thing about like if you can uh leave him a no leave him a dirty limerick and he's just like one has just come to mind (laughs) i mean i agree that they're they're certainly seem to be having a lot of fun in the role i i think part of what makes keaton really work is they're there is a remarkable amount of subtlety in the performance he's giving in a comic book movie of all things you know that this is a this is a different kind of batman than we've kind of been given in the form of say like christian bale which i think is very effective at being an asshole rich person which is like he's not actually trying to be an asshole rich person you know michael keaton is like dealing with the the uh, this version of batman is dealing with the problems of by night, I literally fight crime in a bat suit, and I've yeah. got a secret lair. Like, what do relationships actually mean here, right? I'm supposed to go on dates, and I'm supposed to be, you know, having all of these meetings, but also, like, I know the people I'm meeting with are potentially, you know, bad people up to no good. He meets with Max Shrek at one point, right, and literally knows, like, you're you're literally, like, his whole plan is to do the, uh, I'm going to have a power plant, but it just sucks power off of the grid because, of course, it does. All of that is sort of framed here as this man that feels a bit conflicted because he is, on the one hand, he is this Batman figure, but he's also this Bruce Wayne figure. And who is who are these two people as separate entities? And how do you be those two things to the fullest of your ability, given that the one that involves you dressing up as a Bat person takes an extraordinary amount of time and presents very serious risks in your life? 
it's all there in the performance, I think. Very well done. I mean, like, you could easily just pick out great sequences, like when he's talking to Selena Kyle when they basically have a date, you know, referencing the fact that the love interest of the previous film is now longer gone because she can't handle the fact that he is the Batman and it's just too much pressure. That's all there and very well done. And it's put in a lot of, uh, and not a lot of dialogue. It's a lot of uh, visual performance. I, I thought that was interesting is that, when he has dialogue, it's not an excessive amount of dialogue. He's not monologuing. It's a lot of very short pieces of dialogue that he's given. It's, there's a lot of time given to the actual physical performance, the faces, right? Seeing the the emotions on their faces, uh, which I think is really important. And also, again, part of this sort of Burton way of doing things. Yeah. I, I think that in terms of... of... Both Michael Keaton and Michelle Pfeiffer's performances in this movie, the there's that scene in the masquerade ball where before they kind of reveal their you know their their identities accidentally, which by the way, so brilliant, such a brilliant way of getting it to slip without it being like, hey, do you want to know my secret identity? <laughs> And it's when they're like, you know, he's just saying, you know, there's the, you know, there's California King on the third floor. Maybe we can take our masks off. And it's just like they're going to completely strip down to just their, their purest selves as opposed to putting up those walls with the masks and everything else. And again, it's so subtle. It's, it's just like things that you think about after multiple viewings of this movie. But I think another thing, too, that really helped with, you know, making Batman more, I don't want to say accessible, but just more believable and more fun to watch. This costume that they did was so much better than the first one. It's like the first, I understand, it was the first time we really got to see like a full armored superhero outfit in a modern movie back in 1989 and it looked cool for the time but you look at publicity stills of that keaton's face is swimming in that mask that mask is far too big there is next to no mobility at all and even though the 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 returns outfit still doesn't allow him to turn his head it looks sleeker. The lines fit like his jaw a little better, so you can actually see more of his expressions. There's that one scene that some people nitpick about, where you know he puts the dynamite down the strong man's pants, and the strong man just looks at him and that smile. And it's like you don't. That is the only time I think I've ever seen Batman smile outside of the Forever scene where. Nicole Kidman picked Bruce Wayne, uh, which that looked ridiculous. But this was just, it was a great smile. You could see Keaton shining through in that. And it was just, it's all in all. It's just, again, I think this movie is just, there's so many great things about this movie because they're all subtle. There's nothing there to sledgehammer you about any any of it. It's all are subtle move, moments wrapped up in this snowball of a movie. Yeah, well, speaking of snow, there's lots of fake snow throughout. <laughs> oh, man. Well, they didn't shoot in England. They shot in California. Yeah, this was um, – they, they actually had to run the ACs constantly to get people's breath to show. But my one of my um, one of my co-hosts on my, my podcast, Todd, had said that this movie just looks like it was shot inside of a snow globe. Yeah. And it's, per- it's a perfect analogy. Well, considering this is a Christmas movie. So hands down, it's a Christmas movie. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it- I think one of the interesting things, too, is that it does have that snow globe-ness, but yet it also feels very 
It makes very good use of space. You know, the city feels like a big city. Yes. You know, at times can feel a little small because there maybe are not quite enough people for a city of, of the size of Gotham. But but it feels like a large city. I, I think they make a lot of smart decisions about, you know, what sides of roads they show when they have vehicles passing so that they can reuse sequences uh, rather than having to, like, come up with, you know, like, three miles of road and, and streets, right? It's all right. very well done. Uh, the alleys feel believable, right? They spent a lot of time on the set design, you know. And, and again, this is, like, pre-when CG was, you know, ubiquitous. So, you know, a lot of this is having to be built and made to look like it's a real lived-in space. And so it feels very real and lived-in, even while while all this wacky zany stuff i mean like the giant duck is like a giant duck atv like yeah <laughs> climbing stairs it's real it actually moves it's not like a model like there's a dude driving this thing this awkward thing that jerks around <laughs> <laughs> but yeah i mean it, it's just a visually fantastic film it is one of the best batman films probably that will ever be made. But, you know, one thing we didn't – I mean, we talked about it a little bit, but visually, Stefan Zapsky, who's the uh, cinematographer of this, has done some amazing work and I still think to this day might be one of the most underrated cinematographers working. I'm looking at – I'm on his IMDb page right now, and it's so much – there's not a whole lot of stuff there, you know? He yeah. did he, – he was Tim Burton's guy for a little while. He did Edward Scissorhands. He did this. He did Ed Wood. Uh, the cinematography for Ed Wood is – phenomenal i mean yeah i mean in general that this sort of vision that that tim burton with the crew that he works with you know has produced i mean i i think it's really important to note that that you can see a tim burton film and know it's a tim burton film you know and that's not something you can say about a lot of directors you know i mean unless you're like you know a, a wild cinephile and like you study directors like leonard malton probably could tell but you or i probably can't always tell who the director is but there are like a handful of directors who's like anytime they make a movie you can you know this is this is a that person movie and tim burton has a visual styling that is so present in this film in particular that is unique to the way that he tells films and i i will say that i am less enthused about more modern Tim Burton, because I think Tim Burton works much more effectively with uh, practical effects. Yes. Uh, and needing to have the grotesquerie be physical and real versus something like Alice in Wonderland, which I just visually it's Tim Burton, but it, it doesn't entice me the same way as like a Danny DeVito, you know, playing an, an evil penguin man or, you know, a Robert, uh, not Robert Downey Jr., uh, Johnny Depp playing literally a man with scissors for hands, right? Or, you know, some of the other films that he's done. There, there's something really special about the way that he, this era of his filmography operates. I mean, even something like 1989's Batman has a lot of those stylings in it, even as a film that is much more controlled and muted than this film. So, I mean, I think that's part of why this film holds up so much is just Tim Burton's vision is fantastic. Right, and I honestly feel like this aesthetic lasted until... Like the last film that really held this aesthetic was Sleepy Sleepy Hollow. After that, then it went went to Planet of the Apes. When we went to this, Tim, what are you doing? What are you doing? I know you're doing the animation now, but what what are you doing? But I will say though, if you want to see a good, more modern um, Tim Burton movie, Miss Peregrine's Home for Wayward Children, or whatever the name, or Peculiar Children, that actually feels. I mean, it feels definitely latter day Tim Burton. 
but it, it, it feels like there's a little bit of that um, that energy still there that is lacking from a lot of his other movies. That felt, like Dark Shadows should have been a slam dunk, and it was terrible. But yeah, this this period alone, Sean, the eighty, you know, f- we start with Pee Wee's Big Adventure, and we, even if we stop at Ed Wood, most filmmakers would kill for just that run of movies. I mean, Beetlejuice. Gosh, I love Beetlejuice. Such a good movie. Oh, it is. Yeah. It it definitely is a great movie, and I'm. It's just one of those things too. I I, I love introducing people to stuff, stuff like Ed Wood, which is not your typical Tim Burton film, but fits within that wheelhouse. And it looks like a Tim Burton film. It feels like a Tim Burton film. And it's just, but it's like a grown up Tim Burton film. It really felt, it felt like this was his, you know, this was his quote unquote real movie. (laughs) Well, we could talk a lot more about the various films of Tim Burton, but I, I think it's time for us to wrap up. Yeah. So, there you have, folks. As always, you know, new episode complete, but if you have any particular thoughts about Batman Returns from 1992, I would love to hear from all of you. I'm, I'm sure Andy would also love to know what people send me. So you can email me directly at seanduke.net slash contact, or you can yell at me on Twitter at Sean Duke. But Andy, if you would be so kind, where can folks find you? Okay, well, Geek Salad, the podcast, is available wherever you get your podcasts. So that's iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, you name it, we're there. However, we're also on YouTube. Uh, Just look under the heading Geek Salad Podcast, where you not only find audio for our podcast, but you'll also find our weekly movie reviews. My partner, Mike, and I have a retro movie review section, which Sean uh, joined us once on for Return of the Jedi. So you do a little search to find that one. Yes. <laughs> so we are there. We're actually right now currently doing our, our look back at Pixar movies. Uh, we are taking a break, though, because Cars 2 is coming up and I can't. I just can't. So uh, we're going to be talking <laughs> about season one of Modoc as our next review. Uh, but you can find us there. I am available. I, I am essentially the living embodiment of Geek Salad. So I am on Twitter at Geek Salad Radio. That is where we're most active. However, if you're a fan of Facebook, we're there too at Geek Salad Podcast. Awesome. Well, Andy, thanks so much for, for coming on uh, and talking about this. This is This is a lot of fun. I love talking about this movie, Sean. So thank you for giving me the opportunity to do this. You're welcome. If I ever find another opportunity to talk about this movie with you again, I'll keep you in mind. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, make sure to check out Joy Factory Monthly on your favorite podcatcher. Uh, if you like it, five-star review on the iTunes because apparently uh, I get free Chipotle if you do that. Uh, and you can find the show if you want to support it on patreon.com slash thejoyfactory. Beyond that, joyful transmission concluded. <laughs> <laughs>